Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. I'm not sure Richard Petty's got a competitive bone in his body compared to my mom. I felt really bad for the people that wrote the sympathy card because they had lost somebody. Pearson comes by in his loafers with his cigarette. He kind of nudges me with his foot, and he said, damn, you're going to have to get tougher if you're going to run with us. We referred to it as FART, Falcon American Racing Team. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. Steve, I have the final tally for January. Oh, really? Yes, I do. I did 45.8 miles last month on foot. Okay. Okay, now I told you about the goal that I have to get to 5,000 by the end of the year. So if I do 45.8, if I do that every month this year, Yeah. I will have 549.6 miles. Not bad. Not bad, but that would only give me 4,966.5 miles on my app. So that would mean that I would be 33.5 miles short. Well, you're going to have to pick it up. I'm going to have to pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) We are definitely going to have to do that. Now, also, we have a pretty big announcement. We are going to start videoing 
the interviews that we do from here on out and making those available over on our YouTube channel. And <laughs> we have a really nice camera in hand and we're going to try to do this the right way. Now, I will say this. We are actually videoing this now as we speak. I think you were making fun of me a little bit for how long it was taking. <laughs> well, I know that. Folks, I want to tell you something. When we do this on video, things are going to get ugly. <laughs> if you get my drift. Things are going to get ugly? <laughs> <laughs> For them. <laughs> I think we already there, cuz. <laughs> Seriously, I did use my cell phone to video our interview with Kyle Petty just to kind of test out what angle to use and everything. And the sound actually turned out a whole lot better than what I expected. Good. So what we are going to do, we are going to debut our videoed interviews this week in conjunction with this episode and it will release at 8 p.m. on Wednesday. So, listeners, listen to the podcast, then head over to YouTube, and then watch the video interview with Kyle that Eric Quinn kind of edited and put together. So, big YouTube stars, are you ready for this kind of stardom? Well, you're on the spot, Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> and also, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and once we get to 1,000, I've actually picked up another copy of the Winston Cup scene Dale Earnhardt publication that included the scene race leads for each of his 76 points paying wins. We're going to give one copy of that to one of our lucky YouTube subscribers. That's a fine prize if you are a Dale Earnhardt fan, or even not. This is something to have. Now, see what people are going to be hearing and seeing us discuss with Kyle he actually talked about growing up in the Petty family and what it was like to be a part of a family that was so well-loved yeah. by so many. And also, he's going to touch on the expectations that both he and Dale Earnhardt Jr. faced being the heirs apparent to two of the most successful drivers the sport has ever known. And they were pretty much on the spot, Rick, when having to fill the shoes left by their fathers. Must have been an awesome uh, burden on both of them, I think. But... As I'll discuss later on, I think both of them came through it fine. And then in our second segment, as most of our listeners already know, John Andretti lost his battle with colon cancer on January 30th. Steve, he was such a good guy. He was indeed. And dealing with him as a member of the media, I can tell you that he was very open, very honest, uh, very pleasant guy. Uh, there was no question about it. Just almost too polite for his own good, you might say. But uh, that was John. And uh, what else was John? It was his friendliness to everyone. John always had that slightly crooked smile on his yeah. face yeah. all the time. Yeah. And Steve, I will say this. Back before Christmas, I had kind of put out feelers with his sister to see if he could possibly sit down with us for an interview. Sure. And she said that she would be glad to pass that along, but to not be surprised if I didn't hear back. And I never did hear back. So obviously John was going through a really tough time. So I do wish that we could have talked to him. But John, yeah, yeah, you're in a better place now. Absolutely. So in our second segment, I actually sat down with our friend Jamie Bishop, who was John's gas man when he won his first Winston Cup race at Daytona. And we talked about some of his memories that he had of working with John Andretti. That'll be very, very good. Also, on Patreon, Steve, I don't know what's going on on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> but for the first time in January, we actually had more people actually drop their support for one reason or another. And I understand that financial sure. situations change and all that, but we did lose a little ground hmm. over there. So if you have been considering doing the Patreon thing, please do consider helping us out. The support helps us do what we're doing. The support helps us do the podcast. The support is going to start helping us do the videos that we're doing over on YouTube. If you appreciate what we do, please do help us out. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20, $50. You guys know the drill. You know what's available. We've got commemorative issues of Grand National Scene. We've got classic issues of Winston Cup Scene. <laughs> we have three Steve Wade tracks rookie cards that are autographed. <laughs> and we also have the Scene Vault podcast jacket. So please do consider helping us out. It would be greatly appreciated. Over on Patreon, you can support us at patreon.com slash the Scene Vault podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, that would be paypal.me slash the Scene Vault podcast.
Kyle, I don't know where to begin, but what is your earliest memory of racing? You know, that's good. Um, I don't have an early memory because all my memories are. Okay. Do, do, do you know what I mean? And, and I, I've said that before. Um, I, I, I've jokingly, half slash seriously, <laughs> uh, have said in the past, um, Daytona Beach was the only place I knew the ocean touched the United States um, because that's the only <laughs> time I ever saw the ocean was in Daytona Beach. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? So you grow up and your world is such a small world, but our world was a racetrack. Um, and, you know, we started going uh, forever. I was, I, I've said it before. I was born June 2nd, 1960, and was in Daytona July 4th, 1960 um, at, at a race because that's what my my family did, and that's what my dad did, and that's where my mom took us, and we went every year after that. So it's, it was just always there. It's always there. You know, I don't, I don't think there was ever a moment where you said, ah, we're at a racetrack. This is pretty cool. You know what I mean? No, it was just always there. Was there any such thing as a petty summer vacation? No. Daytona. That was okay. it. Daytona. Yeah. So it wasn't Myrtle Daytona. Beach. It was no. Daytona Beach. No, Daytona. We went to Daytona. You know, and you got to go. Let's go all the way back where if you go all the way back in the 60s and stuff, you were in Daytona for a little over three weeks. Yeah. yeah. We, we'd go down there. And when we were in the first, second, third grade, um, and, and early in, in elementary school, my sister Sharon and I, our teachers would give us all of our work for the next three or four weeks. Really? Yeah, and we'd go to Daytona, and we'd bust our butt and get it done, like, in a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we would just do all of our spelling and all your math and yeah. all your writing, and everything that you had. Would you so get it done well or just get I it done? I just said we got it done. <laughs> my sister would get it okay. done well. Oh, okay. My sister would. But, um, so we were down there in, in a hotel. We used to stay at the Royal Beach, and you'd get... Uh, an efficiency, which was, you know, you had an adjoining room that Sharon and I would stay in. My, my mom and dad had a room, and then you had a kitchenette uh, that, that kind of connected them. And, and that's the way old hotels were, you know what I mean? And we stayed at the Royal Beach, um, and that's just where we would stay three or four weeks in February and two or three, probably at least two weeks um, in, um, in July almost every year. Kyle, you had your mom, your dad, your three sisters – but there are literally thousands of people who considered all of you basically members of their own families. Mm. Now, I think I've told you about my godmother, Sandy yes. Step. Yeah. Uh, you are a member of her family, yeah. and I don't know that you've ever met her face-to-face. But what's it like to have that kind of devotion from complete strangers? So I'll answer that this way. Um, never paid attention to it. Never. Did hmm. you not? In, in my whole life. I never paid attention to it, um, and, and it's funny because I tell people, <laughs> I've always said this, people will come up and they'll say, I'm your third cousin, <laughs> twice removed, on your uncle's brother's dad's side. You know what I mean? What? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. And, and, and I, I will look You're them straight. You're in the wheel now. Yeah. <laughs> and I will look them straight in the eye and say, here's the way it works. I got, I, I've got a mom and a dad. And my mom had a brother and a sister, and my dad had a brother, and all the kids that come out of them are that come from from that side, both sides of those family, and my grandparents. That's as far as my family tree goes. I, I don't go any farther out than that. You know what I mean? That's probably I know, smart. I know those people. I don't go any further out than that. But here's what happened. Um, sad but fascinating at the same time. When Adam's accident happened, um, I I know right now I can go. I can go to the race shop and go to my dad's old shop. And I have, I don't even know how many boxes yeah. of sympathy cards. Yeah. And, and probably fill half this room. No joke. I mean, we're in a big room. I don't have and, any doubts. Yeah. And, yeah. and no doubt. And, and when I started, when I started receiving those sympathy cards mm-hmm. and I'd open them and read them and open them and read them, I felt really bad for the people that wrote the sympathy card because they had lost somebody. Yeah. And, and that's the first time in my life that I ever realized the impact that my granddad and my dad and and that this the that motorsports or racing and NASCAR had had on people's families. You go into their living room every Sunday. They come and watch you and you're not it's funny you're you you're not Richard Petty anymore. You're just Richard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're not you're just Richard's son. And then Adam was my son. So it was really funny 
to experience that because it was like it was a paradigm shift. It was you saw the world from another side. Um, so I, you're right. I don't. I don't think I ever. I didn't pay attention to it. Right. When when I was in the middle of it, I just I just didn't pay attention to to that part of it. You know what I mean? Um, but I, when Adam's accident happened, it was it was amazing. And, and and there were other times that you know it would it would cross your mind or or you would see it when a guy would come up and he would say he would show you a Polaroid, you know, and it would say July nineteen sixty four. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know how the yeah, Polaroids yeah, were? They yeah, just had yeah. they had to print on the bottom of them or, or the photos, the Kodak pictures had that. And he would say, uh, "That's my dad." And that's me when I was eight. And this is my little boy, and he's eight, and I want his photo taken with you. So you look at it, and it's like, well, that's three generations wow. of their family. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is now three generations of, of our family with their family. So you do become part of their family. Yeah. There was, a, on a lighter note, there was a story in Grand National scene one time about you playing basketball, <laughs> and some guys are giving you a hard time. Yeah, and your mama came out of the grandstand. grandstand. Take care of business. Yeah, we rode home together that night because they threw us both out of the gym. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That is, was that routine for her? Listen, my mom never. If you think my mom, my mom never thought NASCAR made the right call. So why would she think that a referee made the right call? Let me me say that. Was she that mama? Really? She was just that competitive. Really? And that intense about things. You know what I mean? She was just that. She was competitive. I, I'm not sure Richard Petty's got a competitive bone in his body compared to my mom. Uh, and, I, and I will say that <laughs> if you put them side by side, because it was totally different. But, yeah, um, I had fouled a couple of guys. And, listen, I was wrong. I know I was wrong. But you got to argue your point, whether you're right or wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she jumped in an argument with us. Next thing I know, uh, I think I had a technical or something, and next thing I know, we're asked to leave the, the gym and then the premises, so we just rode home together that night. Now, along the same lines, <laughs> <laughs> you, am I right? I seem to remember that you were a good enough basketball player to attract attention. No, not basketball, football. That was football. Football, football. Ah. I played football. So, and, University of Georgia, right? I, well, I went to I went Georgia Tech. Ah. Pepper, Pepper, Pepper Rogers was the coach there then. That goes back that far. So, East Carolina, I talked to some guys from East Carolina and, and a lot of other schools, uh, Catawba and, right. you know, a lot of schools around here. Um, but I had already – now, I'm not going to say this is smart, but I had already established that when – at the racetrack, you only – Hit or got hit possibly once a day. Okay. We're in a football game, there might be a series of downs where yeah. you got hit a lot. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I chose the one over over the multitude. Oh, um, I and I'd already decided I was, was going to be, a, I, I wanted to be, try it. I wanted to try to be a race car driver anyhow um, from when I was younger. Kyle, your first start ever in a race car <laughs> is at Daytona. Yeah. That just doesn't compute in my mind. You had never done any short nope. track or anything. Nope. Had you ever tested anywhere? That nope. was the Blue nope. Falcon, wasn't it? The Blue Falcon. That's right. <laughs> so you get in the car for the first time that was, ever in that competition. That was really it was it was the Blue Falcon and we named it that as a joke because Mike Bean or um, Steve Mio and, and all of us at the shop, the, the thing was Richie and all of us, it was we referred to it as fart. Falcon American Racing Team. Um, so that's why we that's why we added it. Oh, that's clever. That, that, it was very clever. A bunch that of teenagers. Was 18, man. I mean, we were all young. Yeah, that was my first start. Um, yes, they would not let me. Listen, my dad, when, when my dad started racing, my granddad would not let my dad start until he was 21. Until he was 21. And, um, and so when I come along, I mean, I had always been told, you're going to be 20 or 21. I mean, that's, you're not going to be able to do anything. But I was already coming to the racetrack. And, I mean, I'd see you guys. I was already coming to the racetrack and had been coming to the racetrack. And, and shoot, man, when I was 14, 74, 75, right along in there, um, I carried tires during pit stops. Um, wow. Signed in as a minor and went over the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's pre-insurance for all you people out there. <laughs> um, and um, so, I mean, you know, I'd, be, I'd been, been around it and stuff, but could not drive. Would never let me sit. Would never let me sit in a car, even at the race shop, and crank it up and drive it through the parking lot or move it around or do anything. Never. So well, um, once you do that, you're hooked. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I know. But the so drug the, is in effect. Yes. Yeah, so the thing was, the thing was, um, 
he said, I told him they wanted me to go to school. Um, yeah. Wanted, wanted me to go to college, wanted me to go to school. And all parents do. I mean, that's what you want your kids. Um, so that's what they wanted. My mom had visions of grandeur that I would become a pharmacist and run the pharmacy and and in downtown Randleman. And I though I it. grew up to resemble multiple drug dealers, I never became a pharmacist. You said it. I, yeah, I, I never become I never become a pharmacist. Um, but I told him I said, okay, I'll go to night school. So I went to Ashborough to a business school in Ashborough. Uh, got kicked out there. Um, they refunded my mom's money. One of the saddest days of my mom's life <laughs> because I would come straight from work, uh, straight from the garage, and I sometimes I would have worked in the body shop, so I looked like I had talcum powder all over me because I'd been, you know, sanding bondo, or sometimes I would smell like lacquer thinner or varsol <laughs> or, or something. So I, yeah. I just didn't have time to, I just went straight from work there. So, now how long did you last? Uh, I probably lasted two or three months. Okay. Yeah. Longer than I anticipated I would last, <laughs> let me say that. Um, but anyhow, so that was the deal. I would do that, and we could get one of those Dodges ready. So we got a Dodge ready, and we went to Daytona and tested, and um, went back and ran the race. Should not have won the race. I, I will say that. A guy named Phil Finney should have won the race. Um, you had um, Billy Hagan was in it, Ron Hutchison. Had some good guys, some pretty good guys. Uh, but Phil Finney and... I remember you got and you guys will remember this. Okay, you, you're in the days when you ran glass windshields. Uh, I think Phil hit a seagull with about ten or fifteen laps to go, and the windshield caved in, um, and that just stops you. You know what I mean? I mean, with a big hole in the windshield, and the windshield caved in. So uh, it came down to me and uh, Rezac or Revac, whatever. Bought, and and yeah, Revac, yeah. And anyhow, I ended up winning the race. So that was my first race. I was standing next to your father on top of the truck. Yeah. While you were driving in that race, and he, I bet he was a nervous. Oh, man. he'd say, he'd say into the headset, "Move up, Kyle, yeah. move up." <laughs> and when you did, and maybe led a lap or two, he turned to me and he said, "Well, there's one thing he knows how to lead a race." Yeah, that's great. Didn't know how to follow. Didn't know how to race. Thought I was the greatest race car driver in the world once I left there, but I didn't. I didn't have a clue how to race. Well, that's exactly my next question. Yeah. After you get the trophy in victory lane, you're eighteen. Eighteen. Okay. You're 18 years old. You're 10 foot tall, bulletproof. Yep. Which is all 18 year olds are. And right? I just had a little bit extra. You arm. know, now you've got a resume. Yeah. Honestly, what were your expectations for? I didn't you? have any expectations. You know, and 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 that that's a that's a great question because I don't believe. Did you expect to go set the Winston no. Cup circuit no. on its ears? No, no. And and I, I I'm going to tell you this. I I don't believe that. I ever had, and maybe that's what my biggest fault, one of my biggest faults. I never had any expectations. I, listen, you're 18. Yeah. You go to Daytona. Yeah. You can go out there and run 195 miles an hour. You don't give a rat's rear end <laughs> what anybody thinks about yeah. you. Yeah. You don't care about anything else. All you, you're just having fun. You're 18 years old just driving. So the, the thing is, there were, there were no expectations. And understand that I had grown up with, and, and, and so to this day, I'm still batting a 1,000 when it comes to ARCA. Yeah. Because I never run another ARCA race. <laughs> I never got back in an ARCA car, period. So that, that is my claim to fame. But I, 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 I say this. I grew up around Pearson and Baker and Bobby and Donnie and Kale and Leroy and Charlie Glotzpack. And, I mean, we can go through, you can go through all of them. Okay, so I go straight from ARCA to run a cup. So I jump straight out of an ARCA car, and the next thing I'm at, I come over to Charlotte to test because I'm going to come to Charlotte and race, and I had no clue how to get around Charlotte. I crashed three times in two days. You know what I mean? <laughs> trying to, trying to yeah. figure it out. Finally just wiped the car out so bad we couldn't put it back together, and I couldn't go test. So they were like, well, we know he can get around a big track. Let's go to Talladega. So my first cup race was Talladega. So, you know, I go to Talladega, and I'm on the same track with Richard Petty and David Pearson and Kale and those guys, and I'm like, holy crap, man. You know, these are the guys, these are the guys that I grew up when I was eight and nine hanging out with by the swimming pool in Daytona Beach. 
going with my dad to Riverside and going out to dinner with him and just hanging out because that's what everybody did. Everybody hung out. So it's like it's looking back, it's a little surreal to think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. hey, I delivered paint to Picasso, and now I'm painting with him. <laughs> hey, what's the, what's the deal? You know what I mean? It was that it was that kind of thing. So, I um, so it was crazy, and and I'll never forget, man. Went to Talladega, qualified 18th or 19th, because that's when you used to have two rounds of qualifying. You know, you'd take 20, and then the next day come back and take 15 or 20 or whatever they did. And you were at Talladega from Tuesday on, but um, qualified, and I thought, man. I outqualified Bobby Allison. It's going to be big. <laughs> they dropped the green flag, <laughs> and I don't know where those guys went. I have no idea where those yeah, guys went. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I knew I, – I can't – I knew they were – I had watched them race my whole life, and I knew they were all great, every one of them. But when you're out there and you, you see them, it's different. And – you know, that day I run, I think I run the top 10 when, when the day was over with. Um, finished in the top 10. We'll say I run the top 10. Finished in the top 10. <laughs> There's a difference in running in the top 10 and finishing in the top 10. But um, I'll never forget, man. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> and, you know, you, you had that Talladega and you had to uh, look like an old bridge. Remember the garage area? It looked like it was just barely hanging yeah. on. Yeah. And I get out of that thing and I'm beat. I'm beat. I mean, I've run an ARCA race. I've never run a 500-mile race in my life. No, anywhere. Yeah. So I jump in this thing. I, I get out, and I'm laying on the concrete <laughs> and, and just laying there. And Pearson comes by and his loafers with his cigarette. <laughs> and, and he kind of nudges me with his foot, and he said, you're going to have to, damn, you're going to have to get tougher if you're going to run with us. <laughs> and and the, the, the thing was, I don't think, honestly, until – that moment, because that was 18, man. I Three months before that, I'd been playing football and basketball and baseball. I mean, I was in shape. But I don't believe it until that moment that I realized how tough they were. Yeah. They weren't. They were physically tough because they were mentally tough. Mm-hmm. They were just strong between their ears. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? They wouldn't fail because their brain wouldn't let them fail. You know what I mean? And even when their body gave out and they had broke bones and... They were just barely hanging on. Hell, they were still driving. They, they were, that was the toughest group of guys ever, period, bar none. Nobody that's come after was, was like that, that group was. So it was, it, was, it was just a learning curve. It was different being out there than it was watching. Well, I think I know the answer to this, uh, but you and maybe one other driver faced monumental and probably unrealistic expectations from a yeah. lot of people, you and Dale Jr. Yeah. Did you even think about no. that to try to manage it at all? No. Yeah. No. And, 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 no and, I, and this is why I say that. Um, I, I was very, and, and I think you got to go back to my mom to a little bit because the thing is, listen, I don't, it's like, <laughs> there are, if, if we could pick we could pick probably out of ten race car drivers, you could pick six or seven. And I would say, okay, maybe if that guy was my dad, I would have different expectations. But you know, you're asking me to go one on one with Richard Petty, and that's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's to- you're asking Junior to go one on one with with his dad. And and his dad is, is as much reputation and legend as it is anything else. You, you know what I mean? But, but and so, same with my dad. I mean, you, you, because if we go back 90%, 80% of the races, Rich Pater run 1,000, 1,100 and some races. And out of that, only probably 250 were on TV. You know what I mean? You, you're just hearing secondhand what people said he did at Wilkesboro or what people yeah. said he did. Yeah. At Bristol, or, but you know what I mean. Earnhardt at least came along, and you saw it. You know what I mean. You you can go back and watch some of that stuff. You know what I mean. But you know, legends are built from people that. We go back to your other question. You know, you're you become part of their family. Well, they're gonna brag on you. Yeah. You know, they're not gonna tear you down. They're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna brag on you, man. So, but so I didn't I didn't have any expectation. And and I go back to that before. I you know I started. I just wanted to run races. 
drive a race car, work on race cars. I liked working on race cars. I still, if I could go back and somebody would hire me to work on cars, I'd work on cars because I enjoyed welding and, and fabricating and that part of it. But, you know, I never tried to be, I never tried to be Richard Payne. And I, and I said this before, and, and there's a couple of pictures of my granddad and my dad and uh, myself and then Adam. If you had an opportunity, if we could turn back time or, or go to a place where you could bring my granddad in here and ask him six questions and then bring my dad and ask him the same six, ask me the same six, and then ask Adam, you're going to get four different people, four totally different people, not even a little bit close. <laughs> you know what I mean? My dad was nothing like my granddad, and I'm not really anything like my dad. And Adam was not like any of us. He was bits and pieces. But it's, it's, it's a crazy – I don't think any of us looked at being a clone of Lee Petty or being a clone of Richard Petty or Adam looked at being a clone of any of us. That's obviously something that you've learned to deal with over the years, yeah. the expectations and everything. And I, I got to say – <laughs> on social media, you you are a master <laughs> at clapping back oh on people, gosh. and people will get on Twitter and say you're not your dad, and you'll you'll go right back after. <laughs> yeah, so that's something that you've had yeah. to deal with since sure. day Forever. one. Forever. But is that something that you have ever talked to Dale Junior? You know, we talked about it. Very little, very little, because I, I have it's a to I have just have a different. Personality. Really? I, I, was, I have a strange personality. You don't say. I, 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 I know. And <laughs> listen, when I went to drive for Felix and, and people would say stuff, Felix is like, man, you got skin like an armadillo. And I'm like, no, I don't, not really. Yeah. I, I, it's just that I don't care what that guy says. I don't know that person. I, I, he doesn't know me. You know what I mean? He, he's, he's read about me in the paper. He's watched me on TV. He doesn't know me. So, and I don't know him. I don't. I don't know him. You know what I mean. So I can't make the statement he makes for me, about me becomes just small and and what the world is. So I've just never paid attention to it. You know what I mean. I, I've honestly, from the time I was little, yeah. I've just never paid attention. I think Dale went through a point where things did bother him, and he had to get to that place where they didn't bother him. And I think he's in a, in a, a lot better place now. And yeah. I think Amy has been really. Really crucial to help him a lot, um, but you can't, man. You can't let that. And and listen, if you're, and if you're, if you put yourself out there in the public, and you're in the public domain, and I see this all the time with people that are actors and stuff. It's like, you know, we want our privacy. You know what? Then go to the mill and work. Do yeah. more. Work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. If, you, if yeah. you're going to do this, yeah. that's what you're doing. You can't have. You can't have just one side of it. Right. It, you've got to. You've got to take the whole thing, but you got to be able to. Uh, you got. You at some point in time, you got to deal with the whole thing. Right. Hello, race fans, and thank you for listening to the Scene Vault podcast. This is Eric Quinn with QWare. Once again in 2020, QWare is excited to be involved with Rick and Steve and everything that goes on with the Scene Vault podcast. You race fans have made the Scene Vault podcast one of the top NASCAR podcasts in the world today, and I can't tell you how excited we are to be involved with it. We're proud to help you bring this podcast every week, and we hope you return the favor by checking us out at QWareCMMS.com. That's Q-W-A-R-E-C-M-M-S.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, most simple-to-use facilities maintenance management solutions that you can find. Check us out. And if you think that we can help you or your business, just drop us a line. We'd love to chat about how we might be able to help you, and we might even get in an old racing story or two. Speaking of racing stories, let's get back to the podcast. QWare. Maintain excellence. Steve, I asked Kyle what his earliest memory of racing was, so I'll turn around and I'll ask you, what is your earliest memory of Kyle? Well, when I first saw him, he was a teenager. A bushy hair teenager. I might <laughs> yeah, have had. he had awesome hair. <laughs> <laughs> he had that petty grin, and he was always around his father at the racetrack. So uh, that's when I first 
encountered him. Now, the first time I think that he and I ever spoke together was a pretty unusual situation. It was actually at a Winston-Salem hockey game. Really? Okay. Yeah. Winston-Salem used to be part of the old Southern Hockey League. Okay, yeah. Their special guest for the evening of this game was Richard Petty. And, of course, he came along, and Kyle was with him. And Kyle, about this time, is 18, I'd say. Okay. Or 19, somewhere in that range. And uh, I got to talking to Richard up at a reception the team had for him. And I said to him, you know, I, I saw that Richard Petty movie again. The Petty Story, number 43. <laughs> Can I ask yeah. you, what did you think of that kissing scene you had to do with that girl that plays your wife? Oh, and, here we go. And Richard went, no. Quiet, <laughs> <My head> quiet. <laughs> and Kyle came up to me and said, you don't want to ask that question if mama is around. <laughs> that was the first sentence I think you ever spoke to me. <laughs> That does bring up my next question. You know, I had to laugh when he was talking about his mama and how she was so ultra competitive. How would you like for Linda Petty to be yelling at you during a ball game? Well, I think that I could stand that more than Linda Petty yelling at me for kissing a movie star <laughs> who was playing her. <laughs> no, after what Kyle told me about Linda's reaction to that scene in the movie, yeah, I can believe she would yell at somebody at a ball game. The image that I had of her was the very matronly racing wife in the garage area. And we all know the well-known story after Richard wrecked in the 1988 Daytona 500. Her first question to him in the infield care center was, are we still having fun? <laughs> you know, because evidently he had told her that he would consider retiring when it wasn't fun anymore. That's right. And her question was, is it still fun? <laughs> is it fun now? Who was the Linda Petty that you knew? A very gracious woman, if you want to know the truth. Right, yeah. Very ladylike. Um, uh, she would talk to me about things that she was doing that had nothing to do with racing. The school board and things of that nature. Just open up and start talking about it. And she made a lot of media friends in racing. And all of them talked more about Linda talking to them about things away from racing. Yeah. That she was very much interested in. Very personable. Steve, how in the world... Did Kyle wind up making his very first stock car racing start ever at Daytona? That just doesn't seem, well, for lack of a better term, it just doesn't seem very wise. Well, he didn't race anywhere else. He hadn't even raced at Caraway. No he hadn't raced at Bowman Gray or any of the other tracks around in that area. That's right. So he starts his racing career at Daytona. But when that happened, I didn't really think much about it because I just thought it was a natural progression for the son to join the father at the racetrack where the father had so much success. Now, he was in an, uh, an ARCA car called the Blue Falcon, an old Dodge. The Falcon American <laughs> Racing Team. <laughs> uh, think about that one, folks. <laughs> Otherwise known as Fart. <laughs> <laughs> Just how nervous was Richard during that race? He didn't appear that nervous to me okay. as I was standing there yeah. watching me. He was all business. As he was watching that race. Steve, of all the drivers who have ever drove in NASCAR, I believe that the two that have had to deal with the most unrealistic expectations would have to be Kyle and Dale Earnhardt Jr. Yeah. And we all know the reasons why. Of Both course, of their of daddies won seven championships. Richard won 200 races, seven Daytona 500s. Now you can go on and on oh, with yeah. the numbers. Yeah. Let's look at it realistically, okay? Of course, they came into racing with big expectations. And, and you know, you really have to figure that it's going to be very difficult for them to kind of fill that. But competition-wise, let's be real. They both won races. They right. both were very popular. Yes. And they won two Bush Series championships. So let's go beyond the racetrack and see what they created. They were multi-talented, multi-faceted individuals. Kyle, of course, came up with the charity ride across America. And Kyle and I are in television and does very well in that. And Kyle is probably one of the most, as we found out in this interview, yeah, one yeah. of the most outspoken individuals. And personable. That's right. Yeah. And same thing for Dale Jr. Yes. He's won that most popular driver award multiple times. He has a, a media empire. Is it, yes. But it's Dirty Mo, right? Yes. And he's got uh, a series of 
Say we say nightclubs and restaurants. I know of some of them in the Charlotte Airport, of course, yeah. and other places. Look at the overall picture and how much that these guys have done beyond the track and beyond their fathers, to be honest. And I think they've established themselves as successful NASCAR personalities. Uh, Steve Kyle Petty is not Richard Petty, no. and Dale Earnhardt Jr. is not Dale Sr. They're but their own man. They're the own thing man. is, isn't that kind of the point? Isn't that what made Richard and Dale Sr. great was the fact that nobody would ever be able to duplicate what they were able to no, accomplish? No, you're right. You're right. But the point being that, that, that if anyone would assume that Kyle and Dale Jr., were incomplete because they could not match yeah. their fathers on the track. That would be a serious mistake. They have become their own men. Yes. And very versatile and highly successful at what they have done. Something that Kyle said really did strike me. He said that a lot of people follow Richard Petty basically on the basis of his reputation because a lot of his biggest successes took place before television came along. True. All of his championships were won before the 1979 Daytona 500, except for the 1979 championship that he won. Right. What, 190-some-odd of his wins came before TV? Sure. Was a big thing week sure. to week. That was actually a very good point, Steve. When I got to thinking about it, I personally have never witnessed Richard Petty finishing the top 10, well, much have. less win a race. Yeah, well, I have. Kyle is right in the sense that if you look at what Richard's accomplishments were year after year in racing, and then consider his personality. So that transcended the sport to the point where people who didn't know anything about NASCAR had definitely heard of Richard Petty. It's like people who never follow baseball. They sure as heck heard of Mickey Mantle. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was. Or Babe Ruth. Uh, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. So, that type, that's the type of athlete Richard was, in that his accomplishment transcended the sport, and people knew who he was. And when they bothered to take an interest in NASCAR, the first thing they wanted to see, or the first person they wanted to hope to meet, or the first person they were going to cheer for, was Richard Petty. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, last week, Brian actually posted some Kyle Petty shirts. He also posted some John Andretti shirts. So he can get you hooked up. (laughs) He can absolutely get you hooked up with what you want to wear to show your support for your favorite driver. So again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Jamie, can you remember the first time that you and John met? Was working with him at Kel Yarborough Motorsports the first time that you had met him? No, the first time I met John was in 1994, standing on pit road for qualifying for the World 600. Uh, his car was behind my car, and uh, I just walked back to him and I said, when you win the race, when you win the Indy 500, are you going to stay for victory lane? And he said, you bet I am. <laughs> and, you yeah, because that, that was the first year he did the double. That was the first time anybody had done the double. Right. And, yeah. and that really put NASCAR on the map because this man was doing both races. It, it was great publicity for NASCAR. And it was, he, he wound up finishing 10th in the Indy 500, which I thought was phenomenal. But, uh, and I think he, he broke in the 600, uh, finished in the like 36th or something. But, but I'll never forget him. I, I will go to victory lane. <laughs> because I, I think truly John wanted to win the Indianapolis 500 probably more than the Daytona 500 or any of them because that was his background. You and I were talking before we started recording, and you were trying to remember when John actually came on board at Kell Yarborough Motorsports. And I think we kind of figured it out that he and Jeremy kind of swapped places in September of 1996. What do you remember about that move? Well, I remember that the, we, the, most of the guys on the team were really Jeremy Mayfield guys. We loved Jeremy. And you know, when they started talking about John coming over, there were a few of us that we weren't very happy about it. And uh, Kel, 
basically told us that if you know, John's going to be our driver and if you don't, uh, you don't get on board, don't turn right on the Dixie River Road anymore. Uh, we weren't running well. Uh, we had a good sponsor, RCA. A change needed to be made. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, when Jeremy uh, went to Karanifus and John came to us, uh, like I said, there was a few of us that uh, weren't thrilled with it. <laughs> Because, you know, Andretti, uh, yeah. we, we had the big misconception of Andretti coming to drive for us. and uh, But it didn't take long to really fall in love with, you know, John and Nancy and the, the kids. And uh, we, we had a really good relationship. And John gave us the spark we needed. But we started having some good runs after that. And our Speedway program was phenomenal. We always knew we had a shot with John at the Speedways, which John was a good driver all the way around. You could do good at the road courses and the uh, Martinsville and uh, intermediate tracks and the speedways. You mentioned the fact that some of the crew guys weren't exactly on board when this switch was made. What had you heard about John? <laughs> well, I mean, John had just torn up a lot of race cars um, in the past. And um, and I'm not going to say, I can't speak for any for all of the guys. I mean, there were only like 20-something guys that worked at, at Cale Yarborough Motorsports at that time. There were a few of us that were apprehensive about it. But again, I mean, take nothing away from John. He, uh, I guess it was just a misconception that we had. Was there a specific point or a specific race where you said, you know what, I think this might work out after all with John? Um, or was that something that just evolved over it, time? It evolved over time. Um, I can't tell you exactly when it was, but the good the feedback he could give Tony Fur was phenomenal. Um, he loved the motor program with Bob Fisher and Tony Santana Cola, so uh, we we knew that we had something uh, something good. You know, we went to Daytona to to test, and he was extremely fast. Um, so uh, it just evolved over time, uh, knowing he was going to be a good race car driver for Kelly Arbor Motorsports. Tell me about his personality. Who was he in the hauler? Oh, he was a great guy. He uh, very dry sense of humor. Um, if you ask him a question, uh, it was usually yes or no. Um, but uh, away from the racetrack, he was a super guy and proud to call him a friend. And, and we still sent Christmas cards to each other until today. Till today. What's your best John Andretti story that you can share? My best John Andretti story. About who he was. I, I mean, there's so many of them, and there was nothing ever bad because he was always a good family man. But uh, I, I will say this about his sense of humor, I guess. We were racing Texas in the inaugural Texas race, and they didn't have the infrastructure built to bring us all down there. So we had decided that we were going to stay after the race until the traffic cleared out, so we stayed at, in John's motorhome. Did you really? Well, we didn't spend a night. Okay. We, we, right. okay. we left yeah. at probably midnight and went to the yeah. airport and flew home. And one of my, my buddies, uh, Jamie Thompson, he, he, he just looked at him and said, man, you got a really nice camper. <laughs> camper. And, and John corrected him and said, that's a motor coach. <laughs> um, but that was just his sense of humor. Yeah. Um, just a super guy. Um, and he would, he would make sure that the team was taken care of. He would come to the to come to the shop, take the guys to lunch. Um, when we were fortunate enough to win Daytona, he sent us all a bonus out of his personal account. Um, just, just a super guy. With the Andretti name and you working for Cal Yarborough Motorsports, you've got two pretty high-profile names on this team. Did you get to spend any time with the other Andretti family members? Aldo, his, John's father, Mario's twin brother, he would come to the races with us. And um, it, was, it was a hoot to hang out with him. And uh, John also brought another guy, um, Kerry Ajahanian. I probably mispronounced his name. But Kerry's dad, uh, JC, owned the 1952 winning car for the Indy 500 with Troy Rutman. Oh, wow. As well as 1963 with... Uh, Parnelli Jones. So it was really, uh, really nice to hang out with Carrie and uh, John and John and Carrie were big buddies. And uh, it was always nice to to be with those those guys. So you go into the 1997 season. Um, Preseason testing, we were the fastest down there. Um, 
really felt like he would win the race. Um, I remember Mark Garrow was a you know young reporter at the time. He came up and he, he asked me. He said, "How are you? How are you guys doing?" This was uh, somewhere in the early part of the week, and I said, "We're going to win a race." Um, I know that was wishful thinking on my part, but uh, we 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 start the race. We running we're running really well in the 500, and uh, John says, uh, "You know, I broke an axle." So he goes to the he, Tony Fur tells him to go to the garage. Well, he, as he turned into the garage by the old Goodyear building at Daytona, Tony Santana Cola, who was our spotter and engine builder, he goes, Bud, you got a flat right rear tire. You don't have a broken axle. <laughs> well, half of the crew is <laughs> wow. has already, they're yeah. pulling the toolbox back yeah. to the garage. Yeah. And three quarters of them are down there. And there's about four of us in the pits. Well, John circles her back and comes back to, to, to his pit. And four of us changed the tire and <laughs> jacked the car and gassed it and all yeah. this. And uh, John tears out and goes out. And, and then he breaks the axle. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the axle stayed together, but we were, uh, we were lapped down. Or yellow comes out. NASCAR tells us that we could pit with the leaders. It was a quickie yellow. And we pit with the leaders. Well, then NASCAR holds us a lap. But John was fast, and, you know, we, so we were at that point two laps down, and that's probably where we remained for the rest of the day. So we go to Talladega, and, you know, we finish, I think, third or fourth, uh, sat on the pole, finished third or fourth, um, go back to Daytona, and we qualified third. Race starts. He's, he takes the lead really early, running really well, and um, – before that race, Tony Furr had told me, he says, you're too conservative on your gas numbers because I was doing the gas mileage. I wound up running him out of gas. While Did you really? Yeah, he ran out of gas. Wow. He coasts in and he's fuming, but he, takes, <laughs> he, he goes back out and he, he said, that's all right, guys, I'll get it back. So I knew we, had some, we were fast. And he actually went down on the apron and turned three and four to pass Rusty Wallace for the lead. And I just knew that my mistake was going to cost us because I figured he'd wreck. Um, I thought my mistake would cost us, but you know he got up there and he, uh, you know, wound up led 113 of 160 laps and uh, went to victory lane for the for the first time in his career and the first and only time for Kelly Yarborough Motorsports. One of the most outstanding quotes that I ever heard about winning at Daytona, Derek Cope said that he can actually still feel the warmth of the sun on his face in Victory Lane. Can you still feel the warmth of the sun? Well, that that day, it, there was a lot of warmth from the sun because it's the, <laughs> the last time they ran the day race yeah, uh, yeah. for the Pepsi 400, Firecracker 400. Um, but, yes, I can still feel it. Uh, I can walk down pit road, and I can feel how I felt that day. I can remember they had a big roof down all the way down pit road and we were standing on the pit wall when uh, when he won the race and holding on to that roof and we all jumped off and and, and hugged as a as a group um, that that was uh, that was a good feeling but it was an even better feeling to to outrun Dale Earnhardt um, there was a big wreck with about five laps to go and NASCAR did everything in their power to clean that wreck up and have a, a green flag finish. And uh, so they threw the green and the white uh, at the same time. Uh, a one-lap shootout, wow. And uh, Tony Furr came on the radio and told him, he says, John, you know what you got to do. And I, I was shaking like a leaf. And I, I told a guy, I, I, was, I was huddled up with Jamie Thompson, and I said, he'll wreck us. <laughs> and Earnhardt? I, no. I said, he'll wreck us. <laughs> And, uh, and so they brought him down for the restart, and uh, <laughs> John brake checked Earnhardt. He had slowed down to a snail's pace, yeah. and he, he, he hit the brakes. Earnhardt hit him. John took off, comes back around. We win a the race. There's a gigantic crash on the backstretch. Uh, Earnhardt wound up about fourth. I think Labonte was second, and Sterling was uh, third in the Kodak car, and, and Earnhardt was fuming. But uh, that's what I remember about winning that race. And it was the old victory lane. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about Dale Earnhardt 
every, all the crews coming out and congratulating Dale Earnhardt. But not a lot of people remember that the first time that happened was every crew came out and congratulated John Andretti. It took John forever to get to Victory Lane because every guy lined up to high-five John. And I remember running to Victory Lane, and I was in there. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> ran back out, waiting yeah. for John. Yeah. Ran back in behind the car. And we're in Victory Lane in NASCAR. Jimmy Cox, I'll never forget, is pulling on the rear spoiler. Let's go to inspection. And Kale turned around and says, where you got to be, the beach? And uh, we wound up uh, getting to enjoy Victory Lane for a little while. And then we left before the champagne was – John had to spray the champagne on the fans that were up against the chain link fence for the Victory Lane because we had all left. We didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, the, and the last time I was on a winning team in Talladega in uh, 2017 – uh, I think that they they were cleaning up Victory Lane when I finally left. So <laughs> did they evict you? They, they evicted <laughs> me from Victory Lane, and uh, Chris Carrier and the boys were over there going through tech, and uh, and I was still in there uh, soaking uh, it lit, up. soaking it up. And yeah, uh, but but you you always you know you always remember your your Victory Lanes, and uh, and I, I can still feel the the sun on my face, just like Derek said. Jamie, as so often happens in the motorsports community you wind up going your separate ways and john goes off to drive for petty enterprises and everything but you remained in touch you evidently still got a christmas card right john and nancy and the children would always send the christmas card um i always looked forward to that every year uh i was a little bit concerned this year when it became a thanksgiving card and it came early november uh deep down i felt like time short for yeah. john yeah and that was an indication to me, but I was hoping beyond hope that that was not the case. But, uh, but yeah, John and I would stay in touch. We would see each other at the racetrack. Um, I went to an IndyCar race in Milwaukee one time and was down there with him in the, in the garage, and we would talk. And um, it's, it's funny, uh, we all had a ring made for winning the 400, and um, some of us wanted a trophy, some people wanted a ring. And uh, years later, I asked John, I, I, I emailed John and I said, who made that trophy? So he, uh, he called me up and told me who made it and where to order it and all that, which I never did. But he would always ask me, he said, did you ever get the Pepsi 400 trophy? <laughs> and uh, I yeah. did not, John, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but we always kept up and uh, just super down to earth, uh, great, great guy. Jamie, what would you like for people to remember about John Andretti? Other than just a super family man, he was a driver. I mean, he drove everything, and he won in about everything. Indy cars, you know, NHRA, NASCAR, IMSA. He, he, could, he could do it. And uh, just because he had the Andretti name did not uh, – that didn't, that didn't mean a whole lot to him as far as his credentials. But what he did on the racetrack, uh, you could tell he was – he had the Mario Andretti in him. I just want people to remember he was a, he was just a, just a stand-up guy. Hey, this is Buckshot Jones, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Rick, payback's going to be a bitch. Buckshot, no! <laughs> Steve, you're going to be in Daytona next week, so that meant that I needed to line up somebody as a co-host. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not sure the world is ready for this. Tony Rambo Liberati <laughs> <laughs> is going to be our co-host next week. Tune in. This is going to be good. Steve, I guess we better get the good ratings on iTunes while we still can before Tony comes in. <laughs> but we got another awesome review this week. KDOLZ831 on iTunes said, Although I am 23 and have been watching NASCAR for over 20 years, the safe vault makes you feel old. Ha ha. <laughs> but it's great listening to all these old NASCAR stories, times of history, and all the key moments of the best sport ever, past and present. 
Rick and Steve are two of the best guys to bring this show. Can't wait to hear more in the future and to listen to some episodes I have not heard yet. The Scene Vault rocks. All right. Oh, the Scene Vault rocks. Let's see. Are you Paul and I'm Ringo or are you John and I'm... (laughs) Am I George or... (laughs) I'm Mo and you're Larry. (laughs) And Steve, over on Facebook, this one came out of the blue. I wasn't really expecting this one, but over on the Unforgettable NASCAR Facebook group last week, follower James C. Mayote asked, just out of the blue, asked, what are some good podcasts out there other than Dell Jr.'s and Blaney's without any prompting from us? Yeah. I thought it was just awesome. Billy Brittingham, Sean McCardle, Chuck Noller, and Jamie Bishop, of course, <laughs> all mentioned us. And then Jeremy Moore added, the Scene Vault podcast has the best, the best all in caps, okay? The Scene Vault has the best interviews of owners and drivers, some who have passed. The Bud Moore interview talking about his World War II days was just unreal. And it really, really was. Steve, man, that just... I just love it. I just love it. <sighs> that just makes me feel good about what we're trying to do. Everybody, thank you so much for your support. Help us out on Patreon. Help us out on PayPal. And if you can't do that, help us out with a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Tell people about it. Spread the word. Please do. I want to let you know the best is yet to come. You know, so for me, I think the thing was, um, no. Did you just turn that on? I thought I did. Come on. (laughs) That's Steve Wade, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Wade. Because <laughs> it probably takes you a month to pack up all this stuff. I don't mind. Well, see, we don't have people to do it for us. Okay.